Porter.com. And from the Wayne and from the Wayne Memorial Health System, with more than 200 healthcare providers serving residents in Wayne, Pike, and Eastern Lackawanna counties in Pennsylvania and the Upper Delaware region of New York State. WMH.org. Good evening. Welcome to this special edition of Let's Talk Vets right here on your community radio station, WJFF. We're asking you for your support at 845-482-4141. Tonight we're going to highlight a couple of interviews off uh, uh, two or three shows that we did. And uh, we cut them down a little bit, but you'll get the gist of what we're doing. And before the, before the show, can I, can I relate to them, our conversation? It's all about relating. Okay. Uh, Dan and I were talking, and he said, what if we do a $250 pledge during this special mm-hmm. edition yep. of Let's Talk we, Vets? We do. We have a challenge on the table here. Now, for uh, maybe some of your Let's Talk Vets uh, listeners are new to WJFF, new to uh, what it is that we do here. Uh, we're a community radio station at WJFF, community public radio station. We're not a commercial station. Um, um, that allows Doug the opportunity to uh, have his interviews nice, long form. You get to hear what people do. But in order to do that, we have to come in from time to time for our fun drives to ask for your support. And that's what we're doing right now. And uh, we have a listener, Eve, in Shahola, Pennsylvania. She's put $250 down on the table of her money, and then she's asked asked us to say you can you can add my $250 but only when you get it matched by $250 of pledges from your people and we need to do this during let's talk vets today so you have only for this hour uh, we have to raise $250 to match Eve from Shahola Pennsylvania's uh, gift and that will put 500 more dollars on our on our tote board basically as i said to doug earlier i'm giving our let's talk vets listeners a target so your target is 250 whatever piece of that you can do uh we want you to pitch in with some teamwork here and uh give what you can to support let's talk vets and all the great locally produced programming here on wjff it's fantastic and and it's a great opportunity we do we try to do interviews and information that's going to be of help to our veteran community and and others um the first clip we're going to do is uh, a gentleman i'm not sure how old he is but he's he's right up there you know there are um about 496,000 or 497,000 american veterans from world war ii still alive as of september 2018 so and they're and they're dying quickly every day because they're older and and there's a lot of medical issues and and what have you but we were very fortunate to speak with a a gentleman by the name of donald mayhus from gramsville Uh, he was enrolled in college when uncle sam came to call and he soon found himself in the midst of the last major nazi offensive we now know as the battle of the bulge Mm. and he survived amazing and then we also have a young lady from the other side of the pond, as it were, Joan Page, who was 17, and uh, she was walking home from school, witnessed a dog fight, two fighter planes fighting it out over uh, London, wow. which was kind of common. Uh, she says every day at 4 o'clock they had an air raid. <laughs> and she looked up and caught a, caught a glimpse of the pilots and said, essentially, you'll hear it in her own words, they're not much older than I. Yeah. I'm done with school. She joined the RAF. Mm. So we're going to hear these two programs. We're going to hear uh, these two shows. We'll uh, break in between them, um, just to remind you. But again, 
Uh, we have a $250 challenge on the table for Let's Talk Vets tonight. Uh, we know that Doug's brought in a few new listeners, I think, to, uh, to WJFF. We also know that there are people who've listened to WJFF for a long time that appreciate that we've added a voice for veterans here on WJFF. So if that's something you appreciate and you appreciate the time and effort that uh, Doug and other volunteers here do to do their uh, put in to to put these shows together, then give us a call. 845-482-4141. Help us meet this challenge for Let's Talk Vets. Mayhus, the last name, it's Norwegian. I'm totally Norwegian background. And uh, I grew up in the Midwest. So I was born on uh, uh, February 9th, 1925, in Minneapolis, Minnesota, again, a big Norwegian stronghold. And then in 1939, my father was appointed to to be president of the Winona State Teachers College in Winona, Minnesota. So I finished my uh, last two years of high school there, and then the next year, first year of college, I uh, went to the Winona State Teachers College where my father was president. Then, of course, war was brewing and had started, and we listened to the news on, on uh, I was home on Pearl Harbor Day, and I heard that, and uh, Roosevelt's Pearl Harbor address. Well, when I was just uh, 18 years old, then I got my draft notice, and I was rather excited in a positive way. What, I what year was that? Uh, that would be in 1943, I guess. Anyway, uh, I w- was called to report to Fort Snelling in Minneapolis, which I did uh, later that, uh, uh, I guess later in the spring or early summer. And uh, I, I took my uh, physical and past flying colors. My health is excellent, and still is. When I got me, I got in the army. And uh, so, let me ask you a question. Sure, of course. Any anytime. If, if you hadn't been inducted or drafted, would you have enlisted? No. Okay. No. <laughs> no. Fair enough. <laughs> no, I would not. But when you were when you were inducted, you went with it uh, with a sense of adventure. You gladly accepted it. I. I'm not quite sure what, but but I know when I got my draft notice, I was positively excited about okay. it, and uh, I didn't. Uh, I wasn't a draft protester or anything. I didn't flee to Canada or anything like that. I, I just accepted it. It's my duty. After Fort Snelling, I was there about a week or two, and then I and some of my buddies were transferred to North Camp. Hood, in the middle of Texas, that's about 50 miles uh, uh, west of Waco, and uh, it was oh, it was about the middle of July, the hottest time of the year, and contrast that with Minnesota, you know, and it's a marvel that I stood up under all that. Now, earlier that year, um, I had taken an examination which would have uh, uh, authorized me to study engineering if I passed it, ASTP, Amer- uh, Army Specialized Training Program. So I passed that, all right. And so after the uh, 13 weeks of uh, basic training, uh, then the fellows were shift, uh, shipped to uh, different uh, p- places, uh, you know, Harvard, Yale, uh, California, all all sorts of places, and and I said, thank God, I'll get out of Texas. Well, what did they do? But <laughs> send me fifty miles uh, east to Waco to Baylor. That was far better than where I'd been. We had taken over the Baylor University, so we had a regular dormitory, and we had. Uh, People take doing all the chores and the food and all that sort of thing. After four and a half months, they announced that the United States needed 
infantry soldiers more than they needed engineers. So we were all uh, sent to uh, to uh, different uh, army camps, and I was uh, sent to north east corner of Texas, uh, near Paris, Texas, and Camp Maxi, which which was much more civilized place, water in the barracks and. And so I did training there for, I don't know how many months. This is 1944. And then, I think in September, uh, we were put on a train and taken to Camp Miles Standish near Boston, Massachusetts. And we spent, uh, I don't know, a week or two there. We were all loaded onto tube transports, and we were sailed to... Europe and Scotland, we loaded onto trains to the southern coast of of uh, England to a Lyme Regis, and we spent I don't know a couple of weeks there or so, something like that. And so then, on uh, I guess the middle of November, we uh, were went to well the southern coast of of England, and then board tube transports to uh, France. And, uh, and during the night, we uh, went through uh, northern uh, uh, France, and I wrote down in my diary all, all the places we went to. Now, the diary, that's an interesting thing. I had been keeping a diary since I was 10 years old, and there, very soon after I got in the Army in Fort Snelling, Minnesota, the word came down that we were not allowed to keep diaries. And then I hit upon the idea of writing a letter home every day. Letters were not censored. And uh, I sent it to my father. So you're in England. And then uh, about the uh, middle of uh, November in '44. To, to France by trucks. We were taken up to uh, the Siegfried Line. So we were on the Siegfried Line for several weeks, shelling every day, you know. And this continued until uh, December 16th, 1944, the, the fatal, fatal, fatal day. And at 5.30 in the morning, there was tremendous artillery barrage, and we didn't know, we had a foxhole, we didn't know uh, if it was uh, the Americans firing at the Germans or the Germans firing at, uh, at us, and we soon found out it was the Germans firing. It was the opening salvo of the Battle of the Bulge, 5.30, uh, December 16, 1944. We were deliberately not informed. So you know. guys were all new, fairly new guys? Oh, yeah. Oh, and yeah. Were, how, how about, were you equipped for the climate, for the cold? Did you have uh, you No, not entirely. A week or so after the Battle of the Bulge had begun, and I hadn't any chance to write anything, you know. And, uh, and so I wrote, when I finally was able to write a letter, I said, I'm, I'm sorry I haven't written to you in the last week or so, but we've been pretty busy here. And uh, pretty busy was being damn near killed by the Germans. Uh, oh, and I was doing the outpost set that day, and, uh, and about noon, and some, one of my buddies came running down the hill to me, said, get back to the company headquarters, we're leaving in 15 minutes. And I sort of, so I ran up the hill and got my whatever I had, backpack, and then we start out, and we marched, I don't know, several hours and spent the night in a uh, forest. And I remember getting some pine boughs to put over us to sort of protect us. And the next day, we uh, marched further, and I heard two of the officers arguing, uh, one of us said, this is just hopeless, let's surrender. Another one said, no, I think I know how we can get out of here. And uh, so we heeded the one who said, I think I know how we can get out of here. And uh, if we had surrendered, we were just 10 miles from Malmody, 
where they had that massive massacre of nearly a hundred American POWs captured, and the rules of war that if you capture, you're supposed to treat them civilly, not to shoot them dead, and that they were shot dead, and a few escaped, and they could tell what happened. So, Murring and we went to, and Americans were supposed to be there, we thought, but unbeknownst to us, they had evacuated the town, the town the night before, and Germans had taken over. And as we approached the town to link up with the Americans, people in the town started firing on us. And I don't know what the hell the officers were thinking, but the orders keep on going, try to uh, take that town. And uh, that's when, oh, we lost a lot of fellows. Somebody crossed the road and got to a barn, and as things evolved, the Germans trained a machine gun on the road, and we couldn't get over there to help them, and they couldn't. They were taken prisoners of war. I was transferred to headquarters platoon. The shelling was so bad that some of the people in the rear, rear echelon were injured by shell, including the mail clerk. He was either killed or injured, and so they needed a new mail clerk. I had to deliver a message, an inconsequential message of my own to them and their foxhole. And as I approached the foxhole, I heard one of them say, as though they'd been considering something, well, then maybe we should send Mayhus back to be a mail clerk. I stopped dead in my tracks. I said, this is one conversation I do not want to interrupt. And I turned on my heels, <laughs> message or no message. And then a few moments later, they called me over and said, uh, let's get your gear together. We're going to send you back to being mail clerk. So I threw my stuff together hastily. And we had a Jeep driver. He knew enough about things so that instead of going down that road where the Germans could see it, so he zigzagged all over a meadow going down the hill and uh, with shells dropping all around. And then every 10 yards further from the front, we got the safer we were. And after we were uh, several hundred yards away, then we were, were quite safe. Now, the former mail clerk, he was very good. And he kept all the information in his head. Well, that didn't help a new mail clerk. <laughs> and then after about oh, several weeks, and I was walking down the main road to to higher headquarters to get something about the mail. And someone from that who knew what was going on, he said, uh, Good morning, Corporal Mayhus. And I said, I'm not a corporal. Uh, he said, Well, the orders have come down this morning that you have been promoted to corporal, which meant that I had been permanently made a mail clerk. So... Uh, Oh, great, great. So I knew that I was safe for the rest of the war. So since the company commander, I remember his name, John Haymaker, he was from Kansas, very near where I grew up. After the war, I sent him a Christmas card every year because he saved my life. At the end of the war, six months on the front line, of the 182 men we had, 180 men we had in the company, we only had Ten of the original company with us, only ten. And that's how terribly dangerous a frontline infantry outfit is. Wow, that's a harrowing story. Uh, Battle of the Bulge uh, veteran, uh, and what is it? I'm, Donald, Donald, Donald Mayhus from Gramsville, New York. Wow. And that, that interview was taped at the uh, Gramsville Library. Oh, wow, fantastic. So. Uh, 845-482-4141. Uh, if you appreciate uh, what uh, Doug Sandberg has done here in terms of creating Let's Talk Vets, uh, a place where uh, veterans like uh, Donald can tell their stories, uh, for not just for other veterans, but also for the rest of our listeners to hear, then give us a call. 845-482-4141 to support um, Doug, uh, to support WJFF, and all the local producers who bring their individual voices here. Uh, Doug, how long did it take you to get this interview? Well, uh, I was talking to my friend John Crotty down at the Sullivan County Veterans Service mm -hmm. Office. Great friend of the station as yep, well. Very good guy, Corporal Crotty. And I asked him if he knew any World War II vets. And uh, Howie Goldsmith, who's the uh, 
the chairman of the uh, Sullivan County Vets Coalition, said, yeah, I, I do. But he said, you better bring your lunch. <laughs> so that interview was just a portion of a longer interview. So we had a really long interview that I had to, mm-hmm. um, uh, you know, trim up a little bit. You trimmed up, you cut down, yep. and you, you got into the studio. We, uh, you know, you had some skills. We taught you some new skills here. And I uh, survived anyway. And you did. Uh, Jason worked, with, worked very closely with Jason in terms of... Uh, uh, getting things together. And the other thing that Jason talks about all the time with you particularly is that you also challenged yourself. You got in there. You said, you know what, I want to know how this works. And um, you actually kind of took it upon yourself to go out there and make some mistakes, which is which is kind of great. Yes. You know, yep. you, you've figured out how things worked. If you haven't made a mistake... <laughs> then, then you're not living. Eight four five four eight two four one four one. Again, uh, this great program. Let's talk vets. Uh, new this uh, new in just the last year, uh, last nine months or so here to WJFF. Uh, we're proud to bring it to you, and we're proud of Doug's work here. And we hope that you will show some pride yourself and give us a call of support for this program. We do have a two hundred and fifty dollar challenge on the table for this show. We are still waiting for our. Our first call to support Let's Talk Vets. Yeah, Dan, candidly, Dan doesn't think that the veterans in the area would will, will do this. <laughs> I told him, I told him we could, and uh, but um, come on, guys, let's and girls, let's let's go here. Yeah, D- Doug, Doug, Doug sing, seems to think that you need to prove me wrong. Uh, we have the Eve from Shahola, Pennsylvania, also believes in uh, Let's Talk Vets. Let's uh, believes in our programming here at WJFF. She's put two hundred fifty dollars in. We're not asking you to clear that whole two fifty. We're just asking you to do your part. So do your part now with a call at eight four five four eight two four one four one, and uh, and help support Let's Talk Vets. Whatever amount, uh, five dollars, ten dollars, twenty five dollars, we appreciate that. If you've got more, or if you want to set yourself up as a sound supporter with a monthly donation of ten dollars, twenty dollars, fifty dollars a month, uh, one hundred dollars a month, I have a few of those. Um, that's really helpful for us in terms of paying the bills and keeping shows like Let's Talk Vets here on the air. Uh, Doug, your next interview is a person, uh, Joan Page. Um, We'll hear a little. She's got a different perspective on the war. Yeah, Joan was a 17-year-old high school student in Britain uh, during the Second World War, whereas you'll hear it in her own words. She says they had an air raid every day at 4 o'clock. And she's walking down the street, and she witnesses a dogfight, two fighter planes overhead, a German and a Brit. And uh, she runs for cover because the bullets are actually hitting the street in front of her. And she decided at that moment that she was done with high school and she joined the RAF and became a radio telegraph operator Wow! to uh, send the orders to the bombers mm-hmm. after they take off. Yep. So we're going to hear Joan's story here, and uh, we want you to uh, call us with a call of support. 845-482-4141. Help uh, support Let's Talk Vets on WJFF. Good morning, Joan. Good morning. Um, So you were in high school, and there was an air raid, and there was an experience that prompted you to drop out of high school and join the war effort with the RAF. Exactly. Tell us about that. When we were in school... At four o'clock, we had an air raid every day. I walked home, and on the trip, walking home, I was watching two fighters, enemy fighters, fighting one another. And as they came low, I was thought they were going to shoot me, but they didn't. And I looked up, and I said, they're not much older than me. That's it. Why am I at school? So I signed the British Air Force papers and left school. And so you went on to training, and what did you train for? I trained for radio theory, wireless Morse code, aircraft equipment, and uh, procedures, codes, and so on. And I trained for six months in the Midwest at a place called Khan in Wiltshire. And I was there six months learning the the procedures of aircraft, and they posted me to training command to Cranwell in the Midlands. Cranwell is the cradle of the British Air Force. The college is there. It's where Prince William got his wings, and it's a wonderful school. 
I taught at Cranwell. I was an instructor teaching cadets. So what was your rank? Corporal. And I had, above my two stripes, I had the sparks, which is a spark badge, which means you are a wireless operator. That's What a fantastic story. Um, And I'm looking here. Uh, is this your husband He's in this picture? my husband. That's the cadet I married, okay. and that's me. And you met him where? In, I actually met him on a bus coming home from Lincoln back to camp. Okay. And he got on the bus that I was on. And you said he was a cadet? He was a cadet. How long, how long did you uh, see him before you decided to get married? He proposed to me within six weeks. Well, we didn't know whether we were going to live overnight. He wanted to spend the rest of my life with me, and so that's what happened. But because he was coming to do exercises in the, in, in the air, air squadron, uh, the training squadron, we girls, we took over the cabin from the men. We had to do their air exercises so we knew how to mark them. So I did his air exercises before he did, uh, and we then knew how to mark them when they were up in the air. We got their log books, and we put them through the procedures they had to do. What was his job in the RAF? He was a navigator bomber wireless. He came to Cranwell to learn wireless, and we were teaching them wireless, the procedures, so we put them through the rudiments of, you know, the find that they could actually be a wireless operator. The navigator bomber wireless was the only person beside the pilot on that plane. It was a special plane. It was made of wood. It was light. It, it was a rocket-firing plane. And they had a pilot on board to take the person, and the person was a navigator, bomber, wireless. So he did his navigating in Canada after he'd been to Cranwell. He did his navigating in Canada and his uh, wireless with us. Did you go with him to Canada? No, I did not. I couldn't. I was a bomber command by now. Okay. We were very, very busy. How long did you actually serve, end up serving? Three and a half years. And a half years. Married women. I was married by now, and married women were first out. Say, so Angela also suggested that I ask you about bomber codes. Well, yes. I, I was when I was finished from training command. They posted me to bomber command, and I was then part of the bomb raids. We had. The aircraft all lined up at night at 12 o'clock, all ready to take off. We used to go to the tower to brief the wireless operator that was going to be on board that plane. So I never looked at them. I didn't, I didn't want to know which one was on P for Peter and which one was on Q for... I couldn't take that. It was too emotional. Because when we couldn't get him back at 3 o'clock in the morning and I'm crying, saying, has anybody hurt from P? Has anybody... You see, because yeah. we had six operators. But we briefed them. They had rice paper orders with red ink. And as we talked to them at 10 to the hour and half past the hour, they would tear that off and eat it. And that was such a communication in those days, very primitive. But the point is we didn't have the wonderful things that we have today in communication. In case the bomber went down. So how long were you, did you remain in in Britain uh, after the war? I was 33 years old and my husband came to me and said, we are bankrupt as a country. The war has bankrupt us. We should go to the North Americas. He had trained in Canada. He knew all about Canada. He had friends in Canada. And we emigrated to Canada in 1957, taking two sons and Angela, the girl that you've met here. She was one year old. And the three of us accompanied my husband, and we went to live in Canada. So what did uh, he do after the war? He was a vice president for Procter & Gamble, which was Thomas Edley in England. 
and uh, he was the vice president of uh, Warner Lambert. He, he learned to be a pilot as well in his civilian street life, and uh, he was in the Boy Scouts. He was the provisioner of the Boy Scouts. We met the Queen, we met the Governor of General of Canada, because he put a lot of time into scouting. So the, the boy, you said the Boy Scouts, is that the same organization that oh, we have in the U.S.? Absolutely the same. Okay. It's absolutely the same. When he was a boy, he was an only child at home, and the Boy Scouts were a big part of his life. They gave him their, his own age group, and, you know, the kind of things that you you like as a child, mixing an only child. And so he paid it back. Do you miss Britain? I do. When was the last time you were back? Six years ago. Six years ago. And uh, I suppose at your age there wasn't a lot of family left, is there? I have a sister back there. Really? My mother and father were still there, and my mother and father came up to Canada to stay with us, and uh, so did his mother and father. The war was over, and we were all building our new lives. We thought it was the war to end all wars, but of course it wasn't. Okay, so I understand from your daughter that you were once a guest of the Queen. Yes, we were invited to the palace for tea, my husband and I. The Lord Lieutenant came to me and said, immediately the Queen comes towards you. You shake a hand and you curtsy, drop a low curtsy. You pull your left leg round. Well, we all knew how to curtsy. So as she came towards me, I curtsied. But uh, I talked to her for quite a while and I was t she asked me, oh, you live in America now? I said, yes, we do. So she said, uh, where are you now? I said, oh, we're staying at the Royal Air Force Club in Piccadilly. And I said to her, there's a beautiful photograph of your grandmother in the hall. Oh, so there is, she said. That was Queen Mary, George V's wife, her grandmother and her grandfather. And she, we talked about that, and we talked about the Boy Scouts, and uh, we talked well, about... This is the same, the same queen that's there today. Oh, of course. Yes. She was a young lady then. Yes, yes. And uh, Thatcher was there, uh, and Margaret Thatcher was there. It was very nice, and the tea was delicious, of course. Well, considering the uh, the technology that we have today, have we gone ahead or backwards? We've gone ahead, but the wireless theory is dangerous, and I have to tell people, the wireless theory is dangerous. It's radiation, and it gets to your brain. The less wireless you can have, the better. Analog with wires is better. So land, landline. Landline. Please, landline. Radio is, well, wireless is very dangerous. The cell, the cell phones. The cell phones are dangerous. Don't need when your fridge tells you to, uh, you want bananas. How ridiculous that is. They just get these Alexa phones and they say, please tell me who was married to who in 1942. And she gives them the answer. But that is an oscillating wireless that's pumping into their house. They shouldn't have it. It's just ridiculous. I'd like to change that. Well, I thank you for your time. It's fascinating. There's not many of you folks left. No, I don't. I realize. Well, thank you so much for your insight and your knowledge. It's It's fascinating and and this will, uh, I'm sure our listeners are going to enjoy this interview immensely. Well, thank you very much. Oh, my God, I'm so in love with her. I well, am so in love with Joan Page right now. You know, that's Angela Page's mom. It is. the yep. uh, Angie Page from uh, Folk Plus here on WJFF. Uh, her mother, yes, was uh, in the RAF and uh, gave a delightful interview to uh, to Doug Sandberg for this. Uh, we're, we're really... Uh, Really privileged to have this, uh, to have Let's Talk Vets here, and to have these wonderful interviews done by Doug. 845-482-4141. I'm going to give a quick update on the challenge. We've had some progress, and we're very, very excited 
uh, we got uh, an anonymous pledge from uh, South Fallsburg. Uh, said, yes, uh, loves uh, Let's Talk Vets, loves WJFF, and definitely wanted to support the program. And we also got a sound supporter in, an anonymous uh, person from Port Jervis. And that has brought us to, Doug, with only $80 left. Only $80 left in this challenge. You may actually, these veterans may be proving me wrong. It's a couple of good bottles of it. wine. It's a couple of good bottles of wine. It could. We can do it. You guys can do it. I know you can. It's a new program. Uh, we got a new audience. You know, maybe some new audience members here, and maybe also some old time audience members who are d- grateful and privileged to hear these interviews done by Doug. Eight four five four eight two four one four one. Give us a call now. Only eighty dollars to go to clear this uh, to clear this challenge uh, and to uh, keep uh, Let's Talk Vets here on WJFF and all the great local produced public affairs programs 845-482-4141 just $80 to go and but 25 minutes to do it um, one call two calls whatever it's going to take whatever piece you can do if you can't do the whole 80 do 20 do 30 do 50 whatever you can do or maybe become a sound supporter clear the whole thing out and really prove me wrong by going beyond the 250 Call now, 845-482-4141. Doug said if I give the veterans a target, they will go for it. And Absolutely. so far, that appears to be the case. 845-482-4141. Now we're going to move from World War II to Vietnam. Is that correct? That's correct. And this is an interview with Chuck Hine. Uh, we'll let Chuck tell his story, and then we're going to come back to you and uh, give you an update. But give us a call now. Eight four five four eight two four one four one. Just eighty dollars to go in this challenge, with still twenty five minutes to go. Um, but if you don't call, we still may not make it. So call now. Eight four five four eight two four one four one. We're speaking with uh, Chuck Hine, who is a Vietnam veteran and a medic. And Chuck, thanks for taking the time to share your experience with our audience. Glad to be here, Doug. Thank you. So uh, again, when and where did you serve? I served uh, from 1966 and then until 1968 in the Army, and I served most of that time uh, was in Vietnam uh, in the war theater as a combat medic. And were you drafted or did you enlist? I was drafted. Um, I was among the early drafting system, which is uh, your local draft board has to fulfill a certain obligation of finding um uh, people to serve, and I got my draft notice, and everyone that went that day to the draft board to see if we were actually going to go in or not, we ended up going in. And where were you living? At, where were you living at the time? Um, in Rochester, New York, a little town south of that, Avon. I was working for Xerox Corporation. I was a electronics engineer that was working on. Um, as a matter of fact, the first fax machine. Interesting enough, uh, I was not able to um, go back to that job, even though they kept it open for me. Um, but coming out of uh, Vietnam, I had a lot of uh, issues that uh, just wouldn't allow me to get back into uh, the swing of things. What was the prevailing attitude of your family and friends and folks in the area where you lived at that time regarding Vietnam? Well, to tell you the truth, it really wasn't up on the radar much in my community. Um, we're a pretty rural, rural community and farming community, and there were much more important things uh, that occupied people's minds, uh, obviously uh, their livelihood. And the war in Vietnam was not quite up there as far as even being a part of the conversation. How did you feel about going to Vietnam? I I don't recall um, even thinking about that when I got my draft notice or when I went into to uh, act, when I got actually in the service and started training. Um, it really came to light though when I uh, when I got into basic take the training, and that was because the my two drill instructors had just gotten back from Vietnam, serving there for a year, and they were very um, forthcoming with what might and very well be 
in store for us new uh, recruits. And that sort of uh, put it on the front burner for me. Um, but it wasn't until then, to tell you the truth. Uh, did you pick the branch of service or the uh, the actual specialty that you ended up doing, or was it picked for you? Um, no, I pretty much let the dice roll their own way. Um, drafted, they put me into basic training in Fort Knox, Kentucky, and I was you know I was going through basic training as an infantryman, and. From there, I was actually designated to become uh, or to go through advanced training in the medical field. Um, so I just went ahead with that. Um, I ended up going to med school at Fort Sam Houston, and it was only going through that training that I realized that that was not the place for me, or at least I didn't think so, and I tried to escape that um, upon graduation. I was pretty much on target to go to college, get the education, get a job that was going to pay well and work my way up uh, and do the, uh, the normal American dream thing. And so that was always in my mind. And so everything I did was based on that instead of maybe what was in front of me. So I continued to just think that I wanted to put two years in and, and get out and then do that. Um, I noticed in your uh, discussion and, and the notes that you sent me that you had a particular problem. Uh, yeah, that's true. Uh, in high school, I I never made it back to the classroom after getting our shots. I would I would pass out in the hallway, or I remember one time making it to my seat before I passed out and fell on the floor. But and I also fainted the sight of blood, and that was a big problem with learning how to do IVs and do shots in the training. And I was running into trouble getting a partner because every time I'd give an IV, I would end up fainting. And every time I got an IV, I'd end up fainting. And it was a pretty uh, pretty sad story. So your, your partners were getting tired of picking you up, huh? Yeah, and they didn't want me to be messing around with them either <laughs> if I'm going to be fainting in the middle of it. It's kind of interesting that in all my days serving in combat as a medic, in the midst of a lot of blood, I never fainted once, never had the urge, never had even a bit of issue with that. And uh, I don't know quite why. So I see you also... Uh tested for helicopters uh yes i did it was one of my ways of not getting into um, the work that i thought i was going to end up was working in a hospital that was all my training was all about hospital care in fort sam and i just didn't like it and really didn't like it and i wanted to do something else and i tried to do that but in the bottom line before i signed off it was commit myself to eight years of obligation. So I didn't do that. But I did end up hooking up with some guys that were going to jump school, and I thought that might be something that would change my trajectory. So I went to Fort Sam Houston and learned how to jump out of planes. It was Fort Benning, Georgia. I'm sorry. That's okay. How did you like jumping out of a perfectly good airplane? I loved it. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I loved every bit of that. All the running that we had to do, we had to run everywhere to lunch. And then you had 10 minutes, and you had to run back to do your next gig. And it was just a constant uh, heavy training to get you to actually jump out of that plane without thinking about it. It was great. Every one of my jumps was just, like, I'm sorry I didn't get to do more than what I did. So you got done with jump school, and then... Um you were going to be deployed. So where did where did you go then? Well, I got my orders, and uh, I knew after being in jump school for a little while that, that um, it looked like I actually sealed my fate as far as ending up going to Vietnam um, because they were short of medics, particularly airborne medics. And 
I knew that that's where I was going to head, and sure enough, when I got done training, that's where I got my orders came for uh, to uh, ship off to Vietnam. And once you got in country, uh, what type of unit were you attached to? First getting in country, you had to go to what was called a repo place, and that was where they just, um, you stayed for a couple, three days until your orders came down for where you were going to go, and I got assigned to the 101st Airborne. So once I got there, I caught a plane and, and got to the unit and spent the night there. And the next morning, I got my orders or got my equipment and was out into the field. They threw an aid bag at me and got my rifle and all the ammunition and supplies. And I ended up going out into the field, which is what we did the entire time I was there. We just did uh, search and destroy missions. And it's, um, it was a hard uh, reality to get out and do something that you had no knowledge whatsoever about as far as I, I didn't get any training in how to deal with combat wounds, all that sort of thing. And the aid bag was full of medicine that I had no idea what was for, and it was it just was fearful. I mean, I just couldn't believe that I couldn't do a job that I was supposed to be doing. And my luck was that I was underneath a uh, what we call a senior aid man, and and he really jumped on and and taught me a lot of stuff. That was a great thing because usually the first person, the newcomer into the unit. They don't want much to do with you because they feel that you you end up uh, you're either going to get shot or wounded in the first couple of weeks, and they don't want to be around you. So um, this guy was the exception, and if it wasn't for him, uh, I don't think I would have survived Vietnam at all. So take us through a typical day, what a typical day might be like for a medic in country attached to the 101st Airborne. Well, like I say, we were in the jungle all the time, and we did search and destroy missions, which is nothing more than just maneuvering through the uh, platoon-sized uh, unit. We usually moved in unison with our other platoons of a company. So there was 40, 40 men to a platoon and four platoons, and we were never very far within a day's hike of each other. And... Um, we would uh, just get up in the morning and pack up and head, hit the trail or just make our way through the jungle. And at the end of the day, if nothing happened or we didn't have any contact, we would just set up a little perimeter, just the 40 of us. Uh, four squads would take, you know, different sections of the perimeter. And myself and the lieutenant, who was the platoon lieutenant, and his RTO would be in the center. The RTO and I would do a radio call all night long. We'd take two-hour shifts. And in the morning, we'd get up and do it again. You know, the, it would just be like that until we actually made contact. And that happened pretty regular and in all kinds of ways. I owe everything to my senior aid man who stuck by me and answered all my questions and helped me through and gave me a lot of advice on how to navigate the lay of the land. And um, I'll be forever thankful to him. Is there one event in particular that stands out in your mind? The, the guy who trained me and, and made it work for me, um, uh, he was very close to leaving. He was getting ready to heroes out. And... Um, I was actually in the hospital because of an illness from a tick bite, and I got back to the aid station from that and found out that he had been killed um, the day before. And that's, that's something I was feeling that I went through, the whole loss and the, and the notion that I wasn't there to help him, and all of that was just tremendous guilt, and, and it left me wondering how I was going to make it. You know, if, if this guy who I thought was just, if he was 
if he couldn't make it, then there was no chance that I was ever going to make it. And so it it was a hard uh, lesson. And going back out uh, again was it was an unknown as to how I was going to filter that out. And luckily, um, you know, I used what he had taught me, and and I I just kept going. And I I believe in luck because it it's Really, it's it, it's luck. What we call luck. You just you just can't figure. You can figure things out a little bit, but you really, if you're going to do your job, you have to get up and do things when you would not do it ordinarily. So it's a um, um, benchmark when you can learn to sow that fear you have for your own life to do your job, and if it happens, it happens, and, and that's what you have to do. How did your time in the military, specifically your time in combat, change your life or affect your life? Well, it had a tremendous impact on my life. As I said earlier, that it, it uh, took me a while to reintegrate back into society once I got back, because everything was turned upside down for me. Um, and so I ended up um, heading to the mountains and just staying away from people and and not reintegrating and trying to figure out what really happened to me. And I'm still today figuring it all out. There are things that I'm thankful for, and one of them is it opened my eyes to a world that I was sheltered from. I mean, I grew up in a rural white community, and, you know, so I didn't meet up with any ethnically different people until I got into service. And the black guys in my unit, man, they saved my life so many times, and they were right on spot. And it was just like they were people just like everybody, and I didn't. You know, it was like, that's what I knew, and then to come back and to learn about all the dissension and all the racist stuff that was going on uh, in this country that I knew nothing about, and it, it made me think and made me question, and it made me want to know, and I, so that's, that I looked at as a positive, uh, and it also made me realize that I needed to be a part of this country to make it work. In particular, um, what I look at as democracy and the whole notion that it can't exist without the people um, being a part of that. And that's, um, that's I think, where we are today, actually. <laughs> trying to figure that out still yeah i think you're right well chuck uh i want to thank you so much for taking the time and uh recounting some of these very personal experiences and, and agreeing to share them with us and and our audience and i well, really thank appreciate you, Doug, it. for doing uh doing this work because voices need to be out there uh, i think there's a lot of voices that have never been heard and that's should be heard uh, related to all these issues, in particular war and peace. Uh, so I know that um, there's a lot of generals who've spoken up about war, and uh, personally I think that we can do without war, and we should be working towards that end. Well, they, they say that the warrior will be the first one to say, don't go to war. You got that right. Okay, Chuck, thank you very much, and enjoy the rest of your afternoon. Okay, Doug. Will take, do. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye now. What an extraordinary interview. What an extraordinary end to that interview. Um, you know, him uh, his, the, talking about uh, war, the experience of war, um, and how he works ag um, against war. And then, as Doug said, uh, you know, just... You know, the warrior being the first one to say that war is not necessarily something that we need. 845-482-4141. Uh, call now to support Let's Talk Vets. Um, uh, 
uh, to support bringing these voices to the air. As Chuck said, um, there's not, uh, there's nowhere else on the dial. Uh, where you can hear these veterans' voices, uh, where you can hear these issues being talked about in such in-depth uh, as uh, you hear on uh, on WJFF. And we have the challenge is still there. I've got to give you an update, and I, we only have six minutes now to do this. We still have $80 to raise, $80 in just six minutes. Uh, can we do it? Uh, Doug tells me the veterans are up to it. What do you think? I think so. I mean, I'm, I'm hope so because, mm-hmm. you know, our our goal is to is to bring this information to you. Right. I, I'd like to get more vets on the air because that's the name of the show. Mm-hmm. But folks are a little reluctant sometimes to talk, and we sure appreciate those like Chuck who shared it. But we do a variety of things to bring you. We talked to the uh, we did a virtual tour of the Purple Heart Hall of Honor in New Windsor. Um, we did a uh, interview with Purple Heart Homes. They do homes for uh, heroes, especially appointed. They redo them. They're out of North Carolina. Um, we did one on on vets and opioid addiction. And you've taken the time to go out there and get these interviews and bring them to the airwaves. Yep. And we have this radio station to do just that. That is our mission, to bring the community voices to the airwaves. Next Wednesday, we're going to Pennsylvania. Now, we only have now five minutes, five and a half, five minutes left in this challenge. So we need your calls now, 845-482-4141. Um, it's like Doug said, um, you know, a lot of veterans are very, very, very reticent to talk about their experiences. And you've heard three interviews tonight, three wonderful interviews with people who live locally here in Sullivan County in northeastern Pennsylvania for whom the experience of war is very real. If that's something that means something to you, if uh, you're uh, being uh, moved by these interviews, give us a call. 845-482-4141. Four minutes. Four minutes to go for eight to get $80 more dollars for us to get this, uh, to make this uh, $250 challenge from Eve in Chihola, Pennsylvania. Just four minutes to go, Doug. Do you think we're going to make it? I certainly hope so. Mm-hmm. I really do. Because this is, I, I think it's a great show. I, I may be prejudiced, but, <laughs> <laughs> you know, because I know the host personally. But, uh, no. I this, do, too. This is this is stuff that, uh, as Dan said, I don't think you're hearing any other place in the area. Right. Uh, maybe, you know, I don't know of any other veteran shows. There may be one or two out there, but I'm not sure. I don't think there's anyone that gives you a full hour of these interviews that gives you an opportunity to have these long formed interviews with people. So you can really hear their stories. We're not getting 10 second sound bites here. Um, these pieces, uh, the pieces that you heard were 13, 17 and, 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 and 16 minutes long. Those that's long. That's forever in radio. And those, and those were edited from the original interviews. Absolutely. Yep. So. 845-482-4141. Uh, we need to hear your calls. We've got three minutes, just three minutes to go. Uh, only $80 left in this challenge. Uh, give us a call right now, 845-482-4141. Whatever piece of this that you can do, whether it's $10, $15, $25, $50, hey, $100, it's cleared. We really would love to hear from you now. A great time now to become a sound supporter of WJFF uh, with two and a half minutes to go. Uh, $10 a month would be $120. That would uh, meet and exceed what we need to do here at WJFF. 845-482-4141. Call now to support this uh, community radio station. Call now to support uh, Let's Talk Veterans on WJFF and all the talk shop programs that you hear here. These producers come together. uh, They go out. They find uh, great stories and bring them to you in long form. They are... These are the stories of not people from far away. These are people who are your friends and neighbors here on WJFF, who are part of the Sullivan County, Southern Catskills in Northeastern Pennsylvania. They live here like you do. And as such, they are bringing their stories. We're bringing their stories to the air with WJFF. What Doug Sandberg has done with this wonderful program, Let's Talk Vets, is bring new voices to our air, air, voices that WJFF uh, has uh, brought to you Uh, as we try to bring other cultural voices here to the station. Um, It's your community radio station. Vets are a part of this community. Veterans' issues affect this community. If you appreciate what Doug Sandberg does, if you appreciate what our uh, local producers do here at WJFF, then call now. 
845-482-4141. Or if you're near your computer, go to the WJFF website, make that donation online, click the donate button, takes a few minutes, and I'll get the email. I'll be able to thank you on the air. But call now. I've got less than a minute to go, less than one minute to make this a $250 pledge. I've got some people on the phones, but I don't know if we've made it. 845-482-4141. Um, Brad Mann is uh, walking in the door. Brad, uh, what, what have we got for news right now? We have completed the challenge Woo-hoo! from a oh. very generous anonymous donor in South Fallsburg in memory of uh, father and uncle, both of her, whom served oh, in World wow. War II. Oh, my God. Yes. Fabulous, fabulous. Yes. Thank, Thank you, you so, so much. very much uh, to, to our, anonymous. Ad- our anonymous donor in South Fallsburg. Uh, thank you to Eve from Shahola who gave this $250 challenge. Thank you to our another anonymous donor in uh, Port Jervis uh, as well. And actually, we've had two anonymous donors in South Fallsburg. Thank you very much. Uh, we've made it.